Welcome. Welcome back to another episode of Being an Artist is Fucking, fucking killing, killing Me. I'm Corinne. And I'm Rainy. And today we have our coffees and we're ready to chit-chat. Yeah. Um, this is our second last episode before the holidays. Mm-hmm. We're going to take a little short break and come back in the second week of January. And we'll keep you posted, so make sure you're following all of our social media. Yes, please. Um, big news in the headlines this week. Kevin Hart is no longer hosting the Oscars, and we thought, what better time to talk about that than when we have the lovely Andrew Savadino on? Yes. Who are you for team hosting Oscars? Uh, Tina Fey and Amy Poehler. All day, every day. Yes. They could just host every show all mm. the time. I'm super into that. Yeah. Also, I'm very into John Mulaney and Nick Grawl, who hosted the <laughs> Film Independent Spirit Awards the past two years, and the notorious Jill and jo- Gil and George. Um, equally good choices, though. Yeah. <laughs> get down you can let us know via instagram yeah maybe we'll do we'll do a tweet poll about it oh yeah great idea cool <laughs> um like we said we have the lovely andrew Civadino. he's here to talk to us he's wonderful a great canadian talent coming out of canada yeah let's get going here you go tell us about yourself tell, sure. do you have, like your thir- 30 second origin story <laughs> andrew if you were a superhero. If you were yeah. a superhero. Are, are we actually doing a superhero origin story or actually just where I came from and what I do? <laughs> I mean, you, you can, can do you can do whatever superhero. you want. Yeah. Well, I'm glad. I've been waiting yeah. a life for tell you. <laughs> um, my, I guess my actual origin story is I grew up in a little town of Dundas, Ontario. 20,000 people, about an hour outside of Toronto. Uh, I didn't think I was going to pursue film at all. Like, I was not... My family's not really particularly in the arts, and, and I was all like sciences through high school and everything. And then in, in high school, I guess in like grade 11, my dad made the mistake of getting a video camera for the family for Christmas. And I already knew my way around computers really well because my parents had like cut the cable, so we didn't have any TV. So you just sort of like, what are you going to do? Like, I got so cutting and sort of editing videos together was something that was easy for me to figure out on my own. And I just started making movies with my buddies. And then by the end of high school, I was convincing all of my teachers to let me make little films instead of uh, handing in essays, which is a great trick. You can <laughs> swing it. Uh, but I was still planning. I, w- I, w- I was thinking like health sciences, like that's what I'm going to do. Uh, and I-, I wanted to do medicine. And I uh, sort of I- I applied to all those schools. And then at the sort of like 11th hour, I was like, but this is like... The thing I actually do with my friends all the time is make movies. And in the summer, like, when I have free time, like, what am I think I'm making these movies. And mm-hmm. some people make a living doing it, so like, why shouldn't that be me? And I, so I, I told my parents this, like, very last-minute plan that I was going to change university ambitions and go to, to, to film school, and they freaked out. And we're, I mean, they weren't, they didn't freak out is not fair. And I'm sure they'll probably like listen to this and be like, how could you say we freaked out? <laughs> um, they reacted. They reacted. And, and my dad, they were eventually good. I think they were worried that it was just sort of like a phase sort of thing. Right. Uh, but they, so I, they, they said if I completed my biochem calculus and physics stuff then, and like did all that. So I was still eligible for the med yeah. path that I could do film school and I did and then I applied and got into health sci and film school and I think they thought because I did all the work surely I'd just be like okay well you guys are right this is a real path and I was like see ya and, <laughs> and, like and I, check that box for yeah, yeah exactly yeah <laughs> and then I and then I went to film school here in Toronto uh so that was sort of like how all of of the the film side of thing I mean I guess being 17 is like not really late to the game to sort of find no. what you want to do but it felt like it at the time because everyone else uh you know when you're trying to put together your portfolio everyone else has done all their sort of like art classes and all of everything so right. when I arrived at film school and we were doing art history I was like I don't know anything mm-hmm. and same with all of these sort of things uh that I took some catching up on but uh at the same time I was still like a kid so it was fine. I, yeah, how, it was are, fine. <laughs> how are your parents now with like the sex success that you've been having? They've been, I mean, ever, honestly, ever since I actually sort of took the plunge and went in, they've been very supportive of, of me through the whole process. I think worried legitimately throughout it too, because I think 
I mean, I'm glad I didn't know then what I know now in terms of how hard it is to get started. Because I think if I knew, if I was going in eyes wide open, I wouldn't have had the courage to do it. It takes a bit of that sort of youthful naivete to like, <laughs> you're like I'm going to do it. Yeah. I'm going to be a movie man. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, I think they knew better than I did how bumpy the road could, could be ahead. Right. Mm. Uh, so, yeah. I feel that coming from a non-arts family and when you say you're going to pursue the arts they all they look at is like what could go wrong and where you could end up without like quote unquote a solid career or a solid career path yeah I think it's a careful line to walk as as a a a parent because you you don't want to give your you can tell your kid you can be anything and do anything and, and and that's a very supportive position to take but it also maybe not be preparing them for what's coming down the road. But on the flip side, if you're like, this is going to be the hardest life ever, you're also scarring them a little bit for like, <laughs> going out into the world. I remember being in film school and I was, I just moved to the big city of Toronto and I'd see people who were homeless on the streets and I'd actually legitimately think I was going to end up homeless. Like that was like, like I would, I would be like, I'm going to be homeless one day. Not, it's not a rational response because obviously I have like, um, the uh, many safety nets that a a lot of people don't, didn't have a substance abuse issue or, you know, psychiatric issues or anything like that. Have a solid family. Even if film didn't turn out, I was like not actually going to end up, but I believed that I was going to end up homeless and that's sort of because I went in with so much fear sort of based around it. And drove you, kind of? Uh, I mean, I don't know if it was like a positive motivator or not. <laughs> I just sort of lived with it for a long time. And then, because as the sort of graduation approaches too, you, you look around and there's no roadmap. You're sort of... No. Uh, and that's one thing I actually yearned for was like if, like, if you did, if you want to do a sort of a more typical career path, like law or medicine or whatever, it's like... There are, here are all these like hallmarks along the way. You need to hit these goalposts and, yes. and work hard toward them. But you're working within this structure where, as long as like you know what the game is, and if you can, can succeed at it, then you're going to get where you want to go. But right. it's I think being in the arts, you're sort of dropped off in the. There's no the, goalposts. Yeah. There's no. no like you graduate university, and then it's like yeah, throw you into the ocean of the. And there's so many yeah. possibilities that it's overwhelming. The middle of the ocean with no map, no compass. And you're like, okay, well, where are we going from here? <laughs> but not even uh. the university. Like, you do your first, you have some success one way. And then you think, great, it's easy peasy from now on. No. And then it's not. You still are working just as hard or harder now to try and prove yourself. Right? Yeah. It's and like I- the bar's been raised. Every time you do one thing well... It like moves away from you. God, and that never ends. It's, yeah. like, it's crazy, but it's sort of. I mean, like I, for me, I did. Like I was coming out doing. I won a few student film competitions mm-hmm. that got me commercial work out of school, and I was like, "This is great. Things are happening." Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you go, and you sort of toil away at that, and then you have your short films, and you think, "Okay, I, the short films got into the right festivals. They won some awards. Now I'll get to make a feature." No one wants to fund your feature. Oh. And then you're like, okay, and then you sort of find a way to make the feature and then it goes and it like plays can and tours the world and wins awards and you're like, finally, I won't have to do this again. <laughs> but you do it. You're constantly, ev- yeah, every single, uh, my, my business partner uh, and producer, Karen Harnish, sort of, she says like every single, uh, every film you make is like, it's sort of like a startup. Like there are people out there who work in the tech sector or whatever. And if they have their one startup that goes well, then like that can be like a career thing. Like you do your thing, but every single time you make a project, like a film, you're starting from the complete ground up, proving to investors, proving to everyone that there's, this is its own unique, good roadmap. And when it's done, no matter how well it does, you you sort of just like back starting it all over again. It's kind of a crazy process. And do you think that's, a problem that even big-time directors, big-time creators are having right now? I mean, if you're on a complete role and every, like, if you're sort of humming along at that top tier, then you can know you can get things going, but the sort of the roadside is littered with the, the bodies of people who were doing great and then had one or two movies that didn't turn out, and then that's it. They're, they fall out of favor, and they don't really get to work again. It's kind of a... Oh, it's, a, it's a pretty... Scary. It's, I mean, it's not cutthroat in the way that people are malicious. It's just that everybody wants to sort of glom on to what feels like it's successful right now. Mm-hmm. 
It's trendy. Yeah. Across, across the board, whether it's casting a movie or whatever, it's like they want the thing that's hot like right now, not the thing that is going to be hot or the thing that was hot and could still be good. It's like, what's really hot right now? Right. Which doesn't seem like it involves a lot of imagination to land at that sort of point where you're like, this thing is really popular right now. <laughs> but that's sort of how it's all right. run. Speaking to having that little bit of success, let's talk about uh, We Ate the Children Last. Mm-hmm. That film, it's a short. Yes. Was that your first short? It was, uh, it was my second short out of school, my second professional short. Yeah. And it has a bit of like a satirical nature to it. And it's, uh, who was the writer? Uh, Jan Martel. Right. So why did you chose, why did you choose that story? Uh, at the time I was sort of looking for, for stories to tell. Uh, I guess I was like, you know, earlier in my twenties and didn't, uh, hadn't accrued enough like life experience to, <laughs> to just know and so I'd, I would read a lot of short story anthologies mm-hmm. and that was one that leapt off the page at me but I read it and then I flipped back to the the um, to see who the author was and I saw it was Yan and I was totally devastated because I thought there's no way I'd get the rights because uh, he'd just done Life of Pi and it was this huge yeah. success and I was like there's no way I'm going to get the rights to this uh, but I was able to track down his personal email address uh, after <laughs> trying all these different things, I can't. Somebody at one of the broadcasters took pity on me after I <laughs> tried going through the agents and doing all the different yeah. things, and just said, "Here's his email address." And I wrote him this big long email, and I couldn't believe it. He got back to me within like an hour or two, oh and wow. was like, "Absolutely, you should like. I think yeah, you should make a, a movie out of this. Let's we'll figure it out." And he cc'd his like team who had completely stonewalled me and just said, <laughs> make it happen. Uh, and so we got to make the short from there and it was cool. Cause I later got to go, uh, I was out doing some work out, uh, in Saskatoon where he lives. And, uh, I got, he had me over for dinner and I got to meet, like meet his family and talk about the film. And he's been super supportive and adapting it into something long format. So it was sort of an unlikely, uh, relationship with this author. I hugely respect that just came out of coming across this short story that I felt was uh, really relevant at the time I read it. Uh, and I think sort of universally, it's still just as relevant, unfortunately, as it was when it was written. Right. Because it's dark. It is so dark. <laughs> I was watching it this morning and like my partner was still in bed and I just like had it going and he like brings the sheets over. He's like, what are you watching? <laughs> 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 but it, yeah, it definitely has, it's quite dark and it, is it written with like a satirical feel to it or is that something that you incorporated later on? Uh, I'd say that tone is absolutely in the writing, which yeah. is sort of what, uh, I loved about it. Um, there are films like Terry Gilliam's Brazil and these sort of films that are really there. I mean, Black Mirror sort of occupies exactly. that space yeah. now. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. it didn't exist then, but it, it really does these, um, sort of grounded sci-fi or like alternate now, uh, worlds that are, are dark. Uh, but also there's like a cutting satirical edge to them. There's, there's a bit of uh, absurdity and humor, but it's played very straight. And that was very much in his, his writing. And the big challenge with it being a short was it's a huge world to sort of try to fit into a short story. So it was, how do I tackle that? And uh, the fun thing about expanding it now is I'm I'm working on it in a longer format as there's a much larger canvas. Yes. And you're working on it with Bell Media? Yeah, yeah. So Bell is uh, on for as the Canadian broadcaster for what will be a, a limited series. Right. Uh, wow. So multiple episodes? Yeah. 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 Do you have like a 10 month or 10 episode or 12 episode? Uh, it's going to be shorter. It's going to oh, be, okay. uh, it'll be six or eight depending on how it, it sort of branches out from now. So we're just sure. finished like and the final touches on the on the pilot and in bible and then sort of the way that we're choosing to approach it is to do the the development here in Canada where we mm-hmm. have complete control uh and then sort of back it into a broadcaster in the states and and build it out from there. Uh the nice thing about our sort of system is you do uh get to hold continue to hold the rights when you're working. Right. So that's a uh, that's a special thing. I went down and I pitched it last winter, I guess, to some U.S. production companies and broadcasters, and I was surprised how uh, warm the response was, but actually started to get 
cold feet at the idea that I was just going to be handing the entire thing right. over. So they and had it, no control or no yeah, say. Yeah, well, I, I mean, exactly. I'd have yeah. some say, but I wouldn't be controlling the property anymore. Would, and it was actually your creative control. Yeah. yeah, and it was David Levine, who's the, uh, the head of drama or co-head of drama at uh, HBO, who w- was kind enough to sit down about it. He like he liked Sleeping Giant, and he wanted to meet about the project. Mm-hmm. And he's like, "This sounds great, but I don't understand why you're not." developing it in Canada and bringing it back mm. down here. He's like, we could take it, but then we have it. And then like, whatever you get in return won't, wouldn't be worth it. You should make it what you want. And then when you know what exactly what it is, then people can take it or leave it for that. It's like, you are a smart man. That's a lovely thing advice. to say from someone who's the head of, head of broadcasting, you said? Uh, head of the dr- drama, drama wow. at, at HBO. Yeah, it a was. Nice piece of advice from That's someone. That's a lovely piece yeah. of advice. Yeah. Which is often, it's like unheard of in TV and movie and the behind the scenes. Thing. Yeah, I, I mean it's a mixed bag. Some people are really surprisingly supportive and yeah. and and kind. And but I'd say the general that's not the general sort of tone right. of it. <laughs> right. Oh, we like your idea. Let us do it for you. Yeah, 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 give yeah, it yeah. to us. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, so it's been like a long walk with that project. It sounds like. Yeah. First I mean, started in. I, I got the rights from from Yen in two thousand eight, uh, and then I had took two or three years to get the funding to make the short and then the short was made in 2010 and uh premiered at tiff in 2011 mm-hmm. and sort of went from there i mean i haven't been working on it entirely since then i did other shorts and then sleeping giant and then mm-hmm. so on yeah we talk about the festival scene a little bit sure yeah um how do you go about deciding what festivals that you want to put it into and like making those decisions and festivals that want like premiere rights and exclusivity and all those kind of things. So you have to wait for all of that feedback. Yeah. A festival strategy, I think really is different depending on whether it's a short or a feature. Certainly. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think uh, if we're talking about the short film strategy, I think with any strategy, you want to start with the top tier and sort of work your way down. Premiere status doesn't matter as much for short films. They're, they'd be, they're more willing to sort of bend uh, around that if they really like the short. Mm -hmm. Uh, but there are certain festivals like Clermont-Ferrand in France that don't, aren't featured. They're just short film festivals, so they're not as well known on the sort of to the, the general public because yeah. shorts aren't as big of a deal. But it's actually a short film market. You can go. We, we we ate the children last. That's where it had its sort of after tiff where it had, it played next, and we were able to sell it there to um, Canal Plus and HBO in Europe and stuff. And when you make a short film and you sell it it's you're like I can't believe I actually got paid to make a movie yeah. <laughs> it's like a pretty great thing um, yeah. and so I, I think that, that the short film festival is there are only that handful of markets and looking for those but really you, what, the best thing you can hope for with your, your short is that you uh, will play and take home some hardware at a festival with a bit of prestige like Locarno is a great example of a mm-hmm. festival or um, the, the, the film festivals that have a bit of cachet on both the feature fr- on the feature front, if you can play your short there, uh, th- that's a great thing. Because if you play your short at Sundance, like it's a, no people, it does have its its sort of brand value. And then right. on the market side, it's Claremont Ferrand and Palm Springs are probably the two best that people don't know as well, mm-hmm. but are very good for shorts. And then on on the feature side, it is it um, there's absolutely strategy to it because I think to your point, it's so uh, premier dependent, and you can really. Uh, and your home, your country of origin for the film really plays into that. So, as a as a Canadian film, if I go and I play an American festival, I have uh, used up my international premiere, my North America, my world premiere, my international premiere, uh, my North American premiere. So, when you mm. want to, if you want to come back to TIFF after playing somewhere in America, all you can offer them is the Canadian premiere, which is like very low on the on that sort of list. So you, you right. want to be wise about it. You can play TIFF and go out into the world because your international premiere, which is sort of the second best to world premiere, is still available. So you could go from TIFF to Sundance or TIFF to Berlin or something like that. But it's really looking at the calendar year and, and sort of figuring out what are the best festivals right. and, and trying to jockey. It gets a bit easier as you go on because when, when you have... Um, some reputation as a filmmaker people are gonna you don't need to worry about whether your film is going to get seen or not at least mm-hmm. and when you're starting out and you're putting your films into the world you're like i just hope 
someone somebody actually it. watches yeah. it and that it's not like an intern with a hangover eating Fruit Loops who like falls asleep in the first five minutes. <laughs> it's my <laughs> nightmare every time I send our stuff out. <laughs> That's so awful. Yeah. That's it. I, I mean, you speak. You speak a little bit from experience. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Very specific. Yeah. 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 Is that I, a job you work? I, no, I never. I, I, I've never actually done that. I have done been on juries before, certainly. So you watch yeah. a lot of, of material, and I know from that limited experience how your own mood, your day, uh, your week, everything plays into the time you choose to watch each movie. It's, it's a huge factor, and there are so many variables that are outside of our control. That's why I think it's also really important. I, on my early shorts, I think I gave up too too soon. You get a few rejections, and those early rejections, you haven't developed a thick enough skin yet, and each one, you're like, oh, I can't believe it. I'm terrible. I'll never work. And and so you almost you give up on, on submit, and it can, be, it can cost money to submit, too. Totally. Um, yes. So if you can budget for that, as I know, every dollar should go on the screen, and that's a great instinct, too, but uh, if you can keep a little bit of a slush fund for festival submissions because it is you you just you don't know and just because you got rejected from four of the top six festivals you want doesn't mean that the next two will say no it's it's so it's like this completely random game sleeping giant uh, the feature got into can uh there were uh 1100 feature films submitted to this section for seven slots shit it's a lottery ticket right wow and what happened uh was the head of the program not one of the junior programmers but each year the head of the program goes to a different country to view the pre-selections and they sort of rotate yeah. who goes where and the head of the programmer ha- head programmer happened to be coming to canada he was in montreal he was telling me this and he was like it was a cold winter day and I went and I and I stepped into summer in your movie, and it was so like present and whatever. And I just said, "We've got our first movie." And he went home, and he basically was like, "Everyone, watch this. We're gonna. This is. We're gonna do this movie." And what if it was a balmy winter day, or what if yeah. somebody <laughs> else rotated was it, through? Was it Montreal? Yeah. yeah, like all these things sort of just play in that are beyond your control, and. You have to, if you, I mean, it's not as bad as a lottery, but it's a version of it. And if you're going to win the lot, you need more ticket. You just got to keep buying tickets. <laughs> yeah. That festival seems so complicated. Yeah. It also sounds like a math equation. Like mm-hmm. when you're explaining me, to me, like the international and Canadian and all of that stuff, it seems like an equation. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot, a lot more to consider when submitting to film festivals than you originally think. For feature films, I think especially. Yes, totally. totally. You, you want to go somewhere with a, a market that you can possibly sell the film, and, mm-hmm. and those are tougher spaces now. And so uh, I think a, a, a sort of a, a warning note to anybody who wants <laughs> to be submitting to festivals is be careful to submit to places that um, that do have large submission fees. There are a lot of sort of... Uh, sketchy questionable film festivals out there that really that. subside on on collecting submission fees from yeah. from filmmakers but they're the film festivals if you could even call them festivals are are, are really of no value it's yeah. just kind of a scam almost that's so, it we were talking about that recently actually with within like the dance community and like creating dance film mm-hmm. and we were like you know you just like see this thing online and you submit to it and you pay your like 45 bucks but then like you never fucking hear anything and you're like is this even a thing is this just yeah. like a full does this scam? festival even run <laughs> yeah and i think maybe it's because dance film is so new in a sense it's mm-hmm. like people are trying to find their footing within it and it's but, and it's small compared to like other film festivals right even like short film festivals or feature film festivals it's like a very very small niche market mm-hmm. that yeah, you're like maybe it's not even a festival. It's tricky. It's hard to know. I mean, doing your re- like, yeah. if you're gonna put forty bucks down, it's worth definitely looking yeah. on the website, looking for photos of previous years. Yeah, and uh, yeah, because you, <laughs> I mean, you, there are definitely ones, that, and some of them even run as festivals, but it's just barely. You know, they're yeah. there for the submission fees and. and to, yeah. Um, I'm running, coincidentally, a new film festival. If you guys want to apply, it's a $200 film submission fee. And uh, we'll get back to you in the next six to nine months, probably. (laughs) 
What's any other require no uh, requirements? Just like anything. It's called the film fantastic. Uh, <laughs> Festival of festivals. <laughs> and it goes to the full support of your next speech. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, speaking a bit about Sleeping Giant, you wrote that one, right? Yes, I, I co-wrote it, but yes. Right. Um, written from experience or something? Yeah, I mean something in between. from Thunder Bay, like you said, you went there throughout the... Or not from, but having that Thunder Bay connection, you went there throughout the summers. I, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I grew up spending my... Uh, my summers, like my family's from up there, and so I grew up spending sort of from the day school ended to Labor Day up there uh, on the on the beach, and I would be up with all these other kids who were a bit older and also just lived that sort of, like they they lived year round. They weren't even in Thunder Bay; they lived like half an hour out of town mm-hmm. on the lake year round, and they were very different than me, and they felt like they were sort of like totally at ease in the landscape and like crazy kids and I was just always trying to play keep up and like be sort of like as as brave or crazy or whatever as as they were to sort of fit in so I was like so I was sort of part of that world but part of not as well and I was up there with my brothers and and some still lifelong friends and we just caught up to enough sort of crazy adventuring and (laughs) uh, and things that I just and I felt that that landscape spoke so strongly to me that I I knew I wanted to tell a story like this and I felt that the landscape it was like the perfect world to put it in so it was sort of from early in my filmmaking and I I'd uh, and there were novels that I loved like a separate piece or these coming-of-age novels that I really connected with and I so I knew I wanted to tell a coming-of-age story and to set it there and so it was a bit so I did write to my personal experience but then I cast these, uh, we cast these non-union actors, like we went and found kids that, because I knew that there would be nobody out there. That had like no acting experience. Yeah. Next to none, right? But I knew that trying to find some kid down here from Toronto to go up and pretend to talk and walk like those kids would be a, like a fool's errand. There's no <laughs> way. And when you, when you see those, those kids, they exude something that, that you can't really fake. And if you're talking about 14-year-olds, if you're going to cast a professional, how much professional experience can they possibly have anyhow? They're, they're just starting out no matter what. So yeah. that was our philosophy, and we went up and we spent weeks, went to every high school, saw hundreds of kids, and, uh, and then you just, like, we, you know, when you, the, one of the, the, our lead, our sort of like our, the one who won a Canadian Screen Award and has had the, the, the career after, he walked in off of a Kijiji ad like uh, into somebody else's audition and he was like I'm here for the movie like, you're great <laughs> and it's funny how it, it works and then it was his cousin that we actually uh, brought in to play what was supposed to be his best friend but after meeting them and spending time with them and doing a short film with them I rewrote the best friends as cousins because they're cousins and I wrote in this grandma character because I met their grandma and then I got their grandma to play their grandma uh. and it was this weird thing where their family the whole fictional like the film is a fiction in the sense but it's there they were able to bring this sort of comfort with each other and this dynamic to it that was based on something very real mm-hmm. so it was partly my life and it's partly also allowing them to bring their own sort of voices and and uh selves into the story and then it's it's also fiction because that's the fun part you get to mash it all up in the blender mm-hmm. so there are three boys in that movie and I feel like there's a piece of me in each of them I'm not like one of the characters but definitely none of the crazy stuff they do in that movie was imagined it was literally all stuff <laughs> out of life yeah speaking to what you said in your email about trying to get your first feature off mm-hmm. the ground and that's your version of your personal hell. <laughs> Let's talk about that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, getting getting Sleeping Giant off the ground was incredibly difficult, and uh, and it didn't sort of stop there. The whole making of it was was very hard. I really thought, again, like looking for that sort of the the goalpost that you can meet. I thought if I get out of film school and I make the short films and they get into the right festivals, then I'll, surely I'll get the money for my first feature and. And it didn't happen, and then you wait, and a year goes by, and you're still applying for funding, and you're getting turned down by everybody. Uh, and 
and we did that for two years where Telefilm sort of shut us down. And after the first year, we felt we were really close. We went up, we started casting, we met the kids that we loved. And then we were sort of, we were given our rejection while we were up there. Mm-hmm. And we just decided, well, we're going to make a short film anyway. And we, uh, I mean, that was the positive thing was that we actually, I had the script th- th- that I would have shot that was a lot more uh, of an imitation of, of somebody else's work or something. Like it didn't feel like, I, I don't think it was as good or as sincere um, I was like I was making a capital M movie, but when we made the short film after that, I had so much freedom. I just had these kids and a camera and sort of an idea, and we would workshop scenes from the, the script, and then just go out, throw the script away, go out, and we would just sort of improvise and shoot and be free because it was really just an experiment. But it cut together really nicely, and I was really proud. I was the, I was like this is the best thing I think I've ever done, and I want to keep pushing down that road. So. I tore down the script and I rewrote it as this, like, instead of a 90-page script, like a 27-page outline. And I was like, that's what we're going to go and shoot. But even fewer people wanted to give any money to, like, a 27-page outline for this story that was going to be semi-improvised. Uh, and there was that, it was like, I guess that winter, Canada Council came through for $60,000. Uh, that's not a lot of money for a feature film. That's, like, nothing for a feature film. But Karen and I decided... We have $60,000, and those kids, this is the last summer before they're too old for the roles, and we believe in them, so we were like, no matter what, we're going to make it this summer. And at that point, I'd already been four years trying to get the film off the ground. So what were you doing in those four years? I mean, like, obviously you're being semi-fulfilled creatively by trying to get this project that you're so passionate about off the ground, but then are you working like a... Normie norm. Yeah, I mean, I did a ton of corporate video uh, Mm -hmm. to the point where I couldn't, I couldn't do another one of my life. I'd be like, (laughs) just kill me because I refuse. Um, (laughs) Including, I'd sort of, uh, I'd booked the fall uh, off after when I thought we were first going to go to camera and we cast the kids. So I had no work lined up and I ended up actually going and working at Mars Discovery District, running their video department in a cubicle working like a nine to five for the first time ever. I actually really enjoyed it. It was like a workation, like cubicle life is pretty sweet. Sort of like, <laughs> you, like if you want to talk about things being like laid out for you, like you go to work at nine, you like show up, you have a coffee, you talk to some yeah, people. Yeah. <laughs> the first week I tried to uh, work over lunch at my desk and they were like, that's really weird. You go and you take an hour. And I was Socialize. like, but what about the work that needs to go? Yeah. They're like, no, 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 no. <laughs> And like, I had to learn how to sort of work less while I was there because there's a You got to fulfill a, a every pace. hour of that nine to five. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So, you don't want to be done early and have nothing to do. No, and then they then give you more work. That's what you got to be smart about Ooh. it. Was, that's what I was actually told. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I was, after two weeks, I, they were like, you, like my boss sat me down and was like, he gave me that exact speech and was like, there's an infinite amount of work to do. And if you, if, if I deliver this now, like you've done it, they're going to expect that we can do it that fast. Yeah. And, and eventually you're going to be outsourced because you're doing it too fast. Yeah. So you, you just need to cool your jets. And I was like, got it. And so I did from there, I did all of my grant applications for all of like, I just did everything. I took naps in the edit room because uh, like, I was just trying to keep everyone happy. And so you can't show your cards too soon. I feel like from what I've learned from yeah. talking to people from nine to fives, you have to be like very strategic about how good you are at your job and how much work you get done. It, that's crazy. That's so that's, sad to me. Yeah. That like boggles my mind. Meanwhile, I'm like literally slamming at a cement wall trying to get like one dance piece done yeah yeah putting all of my time and effort into it banging my head yeah i mean that's the thing if you and working almost 24 hours it never leaves you and even when you're not working it's on your mind exactly and that was why it's like was like a workation because i worked at five until five or whatever and i knew that my day was done and i'd go home and i wouldn't think about that job at all and that was sort of in a way the calmest i'd been Mm-hmm. in a long time because yeah. you, I also didn't have the anxiety of I'm not doing my work yeah. which comes with being an artist too I think with totally. with procrastination or not even when you're procrastinating but when you're not making the progress you ex- expect yeah. you get like the sort of almost like pressure builds up inside you about it none of that existed it was like it was really I highly recommend Cubicle <laughs> yeah. Life we talk about that often actually about 
how like as artists, because you don't have a nine to five, you feel like you like, well, I have to work all the time. I can't take one second off because if you don't, if you take a second off, then like that's another chance that like you're not going to get paid until a later date. Mm -hmm. Right. So you constantly feel this stress and like anxiety that you like need to be constantly working and you're constantly doing this. And then it turns into like the humble brag of like, I'm the busiest person ever. Yeah. Yeah. Losing my mind. And if, cause if you're not doing it, someone else is going to do yes, it and yeah. then they're going to get the job or they're going to get the gig and you're not because you didn't work hard enough, mm-hmm. yeah. even though you're constantly working. And, <sighs> and if you did like, and you get like, when you don't have work, you, you don't feel like you have time off. You feel unemployed Yes. and, and <laughs> it's a terrible, and that's a hugely anxious thing. And that's, what's so hard about it is I don't know the last time I ever felt like oh, I've got some time off and I was able to actually enjoy it because there's no such thing as vacation. Vacation is unemployment. Uh, It's very rare, but sometimes happens where you know what the next job is. It's lined up and you feel like it's going to be big and you're like, okay, I I can take a breather. But I mean, I think that's happened to me once ever. All the other times I'm just stressing. You're still working on those passion projects. Yes. The next passion project. You're absolutely right. I'm living exactly that right now. Like it's I, just a wheel. You're just like mm-hmm. floundering with one water wing on, going around in circles. So let's grounding. <laughs> that's a nice that's image. terrifying image. <laughs> that's what it is. Get out of the, let's get out of the pool and go to the cubicle where it's dry and warm. But I, I, I think the flip side of that is that I don't know how much any of us would be satisfied if we were doing that. And somebody said, "You just need to work less and care less." And and I'm sure, obviously, that's not true of everybody who works a nine-to-five job. There are lots of ways to be passionate and, and enjoy it and mm-hmm. and et cetera. But the job that I enjoyed for my you know three- or four-month stint was only enjoyable because I knew that it was temporary. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I think if that was my career, I'd become very frustrated very quickly mm-hmm. because I, I'm driven to do things. Mm-hmm. And whatever I'm in, I want to do well at it, and I want to work hard and... And that wasn't the right environment for that. So I think I would have been very, very frustrated if I sort of ended up in that world full time. There is an interesting drive that happens within um, people who work on art, work on their, their projects that they're extremely passionate about. And the most I can relate it to is like a cat that's trying to get something but completely getting turned down. Because you're just like, what if I... No. Okay, what... No. And you just are constantly trying and like getting told no or getting like pushed down. And then you just like keep driving through and yeah. trying to make new ways to get to there. But it's a drive that it's a t- different type of drive than someone who is working like the sciences or something like that. Their passion and their drive is so forward, forward, forward. But I feel like with art, you're constantly getting these constructs in the way and trying to get around them mm-hmm. and told no. I'm interested to see like how that that like one characteristic and how that characteristic is formed and whether it's something that you're born with or is it something that just happens as soon as you enter the arts. Anyway. That's yeah, I wonder that yeah. about a, lo- a lot of these sort of qualities that I see There's, that are similar qualities yeah. amongst each other, you know. Yeah. Yes. Is it how much of this is con- the condition the conditioning of our environment as working in the arts and yeah. you need to to be this way or do we end up here because we're driven and mm-hmm. I think, I don't we're know. We're crazy. I don't know. We all or are. are we all crazy? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A little A, a little B, a little yeah. C. Both yeah. yeah. <laughs> Super crazy. Um, what did you tell yourself in the four year, like when you hit that mm. four year mark with your, with Sleeping Giant, you're like, what were you telling yourself every day to keep going? It was actually, I think that and then sort of finishing that film were the hardest period in of of my life because I was also reaching that age where you feel like you're at the this is my like if I'm going to turn around this is the last like I'm reaching that age where it's not going to be cool to like I don't want to go back to school you know in my like 30s and start completely a life over I was in my you know approaching my late 20s and I was uh I, I had a real sort of crisis about if I'm like, you know, you get into something because you love it, but if you're not succeeding at doing it and it's making you miserable and like you can't actually, you don't get to actually do the thing you love, at what point are you 
like, am I just beholden to the, the dream that some 18 year old me had, mm-hmm. or is this what I actually want now? And I, I really struggled with that was what I was doing every day was struggling with whether or not I should consider going back to school or doing okay. something else. Uh, and the only thing that actually eventually gave me peace, uh, with that was realizing that it, whether it made me happy or not, it was almost irrelevant because I felt, I feel compelled to do it. I feel compelled to continue doing it. And, and there's a lot of like, when you sort of, uh, see that level of control that was actually, uh, provided me with some freedom. It's, this is from the time I picked up that camera in high school, I feel compelled to continue to do this. And so if I'm going through a rough patch with it, if I'm frustrated, uh, if things aren't happening, uh, it, there is no turn back to what, like, I don't, it's not about it. It's bigger than whether it's, I'm enjoying it or not. Uh, and that was sort of, uh, a thing that allowed me to, I guess, push through and, and make it, but it was, a, it was a, a, that very tough period for sure. And we, we went to camera with $60,000 like, it, uh, and made a feature, you know, up on a lake like with with no money and all these locations and a bunch of like crazy kids i was like a camp counselor at the same time you have to have like a babysitter on set technically we had for one of the actors we put up uh his mother the kid who came from Mm -hmm. from here and the kids who were from up there uh didn't really have the the support structure and or family lives in which anybody would would show up if you like you invite them but they're not going to come yeah so it was Mm -hmm. we were sort of like our own little family for the summer Mm -hmm. but those kids were very smart and they knew they could like they knew that you needed them and like and they don't have parents who are going to say you know you go back and you do that yeah so they would very much not threaten to walk off but more or less sort of be like what are you and then what do you your sort of authority is like really being tested and walking that line between keep keeping them engaged and on track uh and not letting them go wild like that was a very hard line to walk all that was the hard like all summer that was sort of the hardest part of the job but we had boats break down in the middle of a lake on a like a storm and then the boat that comes to get you breaks down and then you're just like what is my life and there's a a thunderstorm and the kids are throwing rocks at endangered birds and you're like i don't what is my life um what it was a, happening? yeah, it was a very, uh, I think for everybody who worked on that film, it was a very small crew. We were like a family, but we were up there for about six weeks, four weeks of shooting. And when we came back, we all had dreams and or nightmares about it for weeks after it was like, <laughs> it was like a, almost a form of trauma making because it was so hard to do with so few people and so yeah. few resources. But I think that sort of, uh, that, that energy is almost imbued in the actual film itself and because we didn't have a we didn't have a shooting script in the normal sense Mm -hmm. there was a there was I had sides so I had like written words for each scene for the day for people but uh I there was a ton of improv and so you'd never know how a scene would go whether it would go well or not what was happening it was just we were all sort of maxed out and then we had 70 hours of footage to cut down to to 90 minutes that's Uh, like oh it's terrible yeah, it was it was tough. I mean, yeah. our editor James Vandewater was incredible, uh, but I w- I was sure we had nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I actually started to concoct a plan in my head about how to destroy the footage uh, <laughs> because I was like. I'd have done this thing. What at was t- the You're plan? Like, I'm going to steal all yeah. of his hard drives and burn them. Yeah. Well, the, one of the yeah. So the problem. <laughs> The, Not wrong. Yeah, yeah. the year before I was at this, uh, TIFF talent lab and, uh, R- Ramin Barani is this, uh, American filmmaker who's really great. And he was one of the mentors and he was like, Andrew, if you're making your first film and it's not good, you need to bury it. Like it's better to not have a bad first film. Your first film is important. If it doesn't turn out, bury it, start over. And then this is the context <laughs> in which I completed this movie and it was a total, like I felt like it was a total disaster. And, uh, I, I was actually laying awake and genuinely like, okay, well, so for the first copy, I can just like stage a break in. That's easy. Those hard drives can go. The second copy, 
from my place there have to be a fire or something different and then I was like but the third copy how do I get rid of a third set of hard drives it started to look a little bit suspicious at this point point, (laughs) things aren't really it's looking a little targeted at this point no matter what the third plan is and uh it wasn't until we'd finished shooting in August and we saw I saw an assembly at the end of September early October it was like three and a half hours long and it was I think that's the genuinely the worst part of being a filmmaker is when you watch the assembly, the very first cut the, of your work, first because yeah. you have put everything into production and everything you have, and then you get to watch this sort of like meandering, lifeless, rough around the edges thing with like it's not alive. It's like this awful Frankenstein, and uh, and that's a really tough thing because you you're already you're sort of your reserves are at zero. And Do you, you ever just... get scared of watching that footage, though? Like, you ever, like, have, like... Because you said you had these traumas and these flashbacks. <laughs> you were like, I don't want to watch it. I don't need to ever see it again. I just need to bury it. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think it was after the assembly that I really started to think about destroying it. Oh, okay. Uh, okay. <laughs> I'd seen it, and I was like, yep, that confirms my suspicions. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be terrible. Uh, but then... I think you try to, and I've heard the the Cohen brothers sort of say the same thing. Like you, basically, you watch if, your if you don't hate it, it, it's not good. Yeah, yeah, true. Like you if you don't want to go draft. and kill yourself, it's not. <laughs> yeah, you're probably. And I mean, I'm sure some people the first it comes together, and like lucky them if they if it actually turns out narcissists. Well. Yeah, I think so. Like you, if you're kind of, you, if you have no critical eye toward your own work, that's what it is. <laughs> would be great. I'd love to be. Uh, but then you get the rough cut, and then it's like it's still all these things are broken. But you start to see that maybe there's something in there that was a version of what you wanted to do, and that's when it gets exciting. And the edit, I think, is kind of my favorite part of the process because, unlike writing, you don't have an infinite canvas. You have the sort of blocks that you've you've put together in, mm-hmm. in production and there are only so many permutations of how you can put them together yeah. and it's just about working at making what you currently have better and better and better mm-hmm. and it can be like a normal healthy job because it sort of is like a nine to five you go in every day there's a concrete task we have to edit this thing mm-hmm. you work on it scene by scene day by day and i find that to be a very healthy balanced sort of lifestyle compared to writing which is sort of just the in, like you're alone with a blinking cursor and <laughs> and feeling time and your life go by, and then the production is just mayhem. Uh, the edit is like where you get to sort of live a normal like civilian life. I like it. <laughs> you like the editing process. I really do. I do. I mean, I think it's, and then you get to do your sound mix, and the thing gets better overnight. It's like the film gets yeah. like 30% better in like two days, and you're like, I love this. This is great. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know that I want to be an editor f- full time. I do actually enjoy the sort of the, arc. the process and the arc of it, and uh, but I think I'm I have the, the best sort of life when I'm I'm in, in post for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk a little bit about projects that you're doing right now. So you're working on uh, We Eat the Children Last mm-hmm. with Bell Media, um, and you're directing, or you just finished directing Summer Shits Creek. Is that right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> you looked at me like yeah, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, yeah. I'm. I've done actually. I did my first episode of Shit's Creek uh, with. I co-directed with Dan not last spring, but the spring before. But it's only airing in a couple of weeks because oh, I did wow. the. I did the Christmas special. Right, because they're so they get pushed back so much. The, they don't always, but this one, we did the Christmas special, but it would have, if it aired last year, it would have aired before season four and it would have been full of spoilers for the season. So they mm-hmm. had to wait the whole season for it to come around. Mm-hmm. So my first episode was the Christmas special and that'll air December uh, 17th, I think, yeah. on CBC and Pop and Netflix. And then um, this year I came and did the, the season finale with Dan as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that will, you know, that'll air in the winter. Mm-hmm. And then next season I'm going to be back as sort of a recurring director and do a, a bunch of episodes, which right. will be really fun because it's a, 
a great show to work on. It's a great show. It's a great show. Great um, Canadian. It's a great show in general, but it's yeah. wonderful that it's Canadian. Yes. I feel really lucky to work on it. It's such wonderful people. They I are. also grew up watching sort of Catherine and, and Eugene. Yeah. And like Home Alone, you know, like, so getting to work with them. And now at the point where I feel like I'm actually getting to work with them as opposed to just being like in their presence and a little <laughs> bit shy about my craft. Right. Yeah. Um, it's, it's really an enjoyable thing. Uh, had Dan, Dan Levy, yes. had he seen Sleeping Giant or yes. how did you make that connection? Uh, Dan actually came to, he transferred in from York to Ryerson where I was and we became friends in film school, but he then left very quickly because he got an MTV gig. So he left and we sort of drifted apart. And then as I cont- we kept bumping into each other and maintaining sort of that like acquaintance friendship mm-hmm. that you have with people you really like but aren't, don't see all the time. Mm-hmm. And then I made Sleeping Giant and he saw it and really connected with it. And uh, he reached out. We were, both, uh, we were both in New York for something and we went out for lunch and he asked if I would come and, and he said that you... For the Christmas special, they wanted to do something a bit more cinematic than they normally do, and he asked if I'd come in and co-direct with him. And so it started there, nice. and uh, it was yeah, it was a lot of fun. So I'm doing that, and then uh, I have a my sort of second feature is financed, but we're still casting, and so that there's a chance that'll go in February. But like, I'm sort of as February approaches, it seems less and less likely. We're down to the wire, but mm-hmm. uh, I can't. If I if it shoots after that, it won't be until the next fall because I'll be on Schitt's Creek basically from the spring through the summer. Right. Uh, so I've got those going on. I'm almost done a draft of a third feature. And the reason I have this development that far is because the second feature has been like Sleeping Giant all over again. If we talk about the the painful cycle yeah. of it all, <laughs> we've been, you know, we were... Do you feel like you're getting a little bit each... I mean, it's a painful cycle, but you, each time you're getting a little bit more educated on how to maneuver your way through it or do you feel like it's getting better i don't think it's getting better but i I want to tell you that it is i i think that but you do learn more every time and the challenges are different every time because hopefully you're sort of getting to work in a different sphere Mm -hmm. uh but the second so i've learned a ton on the second feature for sure uh after, after sleeping giant i've learned a whole world of things but uh i've also been casting this movie for uh 16 months we were ready to go this time last year we had our cast and then tom cruise broke his ankle on mission impossible shooting because he does his own stunts and his uh co-lead uh in that film was attached to our film and they got pushed and obviously mission impossible takes priority i was like what do you mean it takes priority (laughs) obviously it takes priority and so (laughs) By the time they'd finished shooting that, do we uh, really need seven Mission Impossible yeah, movies? Exactly. Come on, Tom! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> By the time they were able, his ankle healed, and they were able to get back to shooting that, um, schedules changed, everything happened, and so that iteration of the cast fell apart. And I, so I would, I was meant to be shooting last November, and yes. now here I am, and I had my cast, and here I am, you know, a year later, sort of in a, this place of recasting the movie. So these things are are hap- are frustrating and, and yeah. happen. Are you finding during this recasting process that you're looking for people similar to what you had before or you're like trying to fill a void and it casting is, uh, I mean, I, I, before this, I would just cast by putting out a call and you see who shows up and then you, you find the best people, but casting for a film that is finance independent is a very different game, which is you need to find people who have the quote unquote value mm. on the market. And so trying to find people who are like big enough to satisfy the financiers, uh, but still approachable in some way, right. uh, who are right for it is a very hard Politics thing. Politics behind it. Yeah. You, it's, you're making, it's much more strategic than just like pure casting, which is right. really you, a scattershot of people. You're going to watch a lot of tape. You're going to be in a room with a lot of people. When you do it like this, nobody auditions. You literally, you offer them, mm-hmm. you put in an offer so there's like a, you will get paid this much for this much time. Here's the script. And then if you get through their eight, you know, their agent mm-hmm. reads it or their manager likes it, then they'll pass it to them. And then if they decide to get around to reading it in three or four weeks, then they'll, then they'll get back to you. And that's sort of, it's a strange process, but that is it. And like the festival submission thing, 
there are so many random... Uh, I, I sat down with um, a very experienced uh, and successful actor and he was talking about this. And he kind of gave me the same speech about casting that like I was talking about festivals. He just said, you have no idea what's happening in someone's life. You have no idea whether they just had a divorce and they don't want to work or they just had a divorce and they want to work. Right. You, have, you can't know any of these variables. So you just really need to keep pursuing the people that you want until you get that break. And sometimes it happens quickly and sometimes it can take years. And it's, it's crazy, but there's so much luck that goes into what we all do. Mm-hmm. Uh, you wish it wasn't true, but... Um, and obviously like talent, skill, perseverance, work ethic, all of these things, being a quality human being, they all actually do contribute toward you getting where you want. But at the end of the day, we're all sort of flipping coin after flipping coin, uh, (laughs) along the way. So you're feeling extremely creatively fulfilled right now with those projects, is what you're saying? Well, I mean, I'm simultaneously frustrated, Mm -hmm. uh, but the way to not be too frustrated is to then just say, okay, well then I'll write the next film. And and that way, by the time this one actually happens, the other film will already be in the marketplace getting its financing, getting cast, so that I can sort of leapfrog from one to the next and not feel like the last year was just waiting, which I think is a terrible place to be. Mm -hmm. I think we should never be waiting. We should always be working. And if if you're up, if you're banging your head against a wall on one thing, uh, just then don't quit on it, but work on something else at the same time. Totally. Yeah. Is oh, being an artist fucking killing you, Andrew? <laughs> inch by inch, day by day. No, no. <laughs> uh, is it killing me? I mean, I guess we're, we're all going to die anyway, right? So yeah, is it killing fuck. me? Sure. But, you know, I really love it. And I, with everything I, I know and all the bumps along the way, I still would absolutely, if I could go back. Would I do some things differently? Yes. But would I choose a different profession? No. I really love what I do. And I'm, I'm glad that I, I'm still able to pursue it and, and try to do it. Is it killing you? How do you guys feel about it? Oh. <laughs> no one's asked us before. I know. That was so <laughs> turn of events. All right. Um, <laughs> you go first, Karen. You okay. Take the lead. Okay. Uh, I feel that it depends on the day. Some days I wake up and I feel really good. And I'm excited to be working on what I'm working on. Or some days I wake up and I'm like, I'm not doing anything. Some days, yeah, some days it feels like I'm not doing enough. And some days it feels like I'm overwhelmed. And then there's like, there's no in between Mm -hmm. for me right now. It's like everything is due right now and you have to finish everything. Or you have to spend six hours on something today. And then the next day is like, "Hmm, whatever. Do you ever feel like... uh, you're overwhelmed and there's a ton to do and you've worked all day, but you can't, you're like, I don't know what I actually accomplished. I don't know how much closer I am to, to getting where I'm going. Yeah. That's like yes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. 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 The politics are killing me, but it's, I guess like the places that it, like the arts take, takes me is, is lovely and fulfilling, but the politics kill me sometimes of being an artist. You know, the admin work and finding that balance is challenging. Mm-hmm. But, like, you wouldn't trade it for anything. No. No. Yeah. There we go. That's it's optimistic, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. This is Andrew's show now. Yeah, exactly. Guys, <laughs> <laughs> we have a new host. Yeah. <laughs> um, so thank you guys for listening so much. Thank you. Thank you for coming. It was Andrew. really, truly my I guess pleasure. we should say, too, we, like, met in, like, the very strangest circumstance. <laughs> we met at, like, a Halloween party for, for, um, that our friend Sarita was showing. Yes. Outside of, like, that scary room that <laughs> everybody was going into. Yeah. <laughs> they do a, a they do a great Halloween party yeah. and God, it involves sort of themed like haunted house style rooms, including a, their like detached, awful, <laughs> horrifying garage. This Although year. I heard next year that they're not doing the garage, Sarita said it was too much work. <laughs> well, and frankly traumatizing. I don't ever want to go out and find like weird, like dead looking. I thought someone was going to like, I was like, they hired some, they must have hired actors to like pop out is what I thought. (laughs) But no, just as spooky. Definitely. And that's, that's where we met. Yeah. It was was also nice to meet other artists in like a non art setting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like just like in a casual, we're hanging out 
in costumes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> what were you dressed as? Were you dressed? Oh, uh, let's not. Adam and Sarita get on me about my costume every year because I wore the same <laughs> the thing same last year, yeah. year, and they were like, "Oh, I see. You're gonna do that now. You're gonna be." I'm like, "It's better than no costume." So I don't know. Next, I have actually a great idea for next year. Yeah. Uh, but I might just go as the same thing to just to piss just them off. <laughs> well, is this a good? Okay, I had because I was supposed to be writing. I think this was like two days ago, and I was like. Instead of writing, I thought of what I should be for Halloween. <laughs> yeah, of course. And I was thinking of going as Haunted House MD. Like House, the doctor, has MD, <laughs> but like, okay, bad costume, okay. Not Back a bad costume, like, it's like iconic. It's about the execution story. here. Yeah. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. I think I think both would be great options. Maybe have two. Maybe change halfway Maybe through change the night. Through. Maybe change halfway through. Maybe I show up in the same lame costume. And then halfway through, through the night, there's a and costume there's change. A costume change, and I'm like magnificent house... Haunted House MD, but better than you can imagine it right now. Yes, yeah. okay. it's going to be great. It's going to be We're wonderful. Excited. <laughs> We're excited for next year's right. Halloween yeah. party. Um, thank you guys for listening so much. Uh, if you like what you're listening to, go leave us a review on iTunes, download us on Spotify, or just hit us up on Facebook, Instagram, or whatever. Email or us. Patreon. Or Patreon. <laughs> thank you guys for listening, and we'll catch you next week. Thank you. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you.